0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 266 of Forgotten Classics, where we will begin listening to a few short stories. Since we're between books right now, having just finished *The People of the Mist* by H. Rider Haggard, before we get into the story, though. Let's talk about the podcast highlight. And I actually have a new podcast, or new to me anyway, because this has quite a few episodes to it. It's called Listen to Lucy. The description says Lucy Kellaway, the Financial Times management columnist, pokes fun at management fads and jargon and celebrates the ups and downs of office life. Lucy. Talks for five minutes, never more, never less. It's admirably timed. She is crisp. She is to the point. She can be kind of hilarious as she points out all these little quirks that go along with office life. And the thing I like is... She just calls it like she sees it. She doesn't sit around worrying about whose feelings she's going to hurt. And that doesn't mean I've heard anything that I think would actually hurt anyone's feelings, but she doesn't really care if something is popular or not before she talks about it or before she gives her opinion, which generally is pretty logical. She talks about why on review sites we'll talk more about toilet paper quality than a particular site I wasn't aware of where you can review your job and who you're working for, which sounds interesting, I would say. She talks about why professional service pitches often tend to be so similar that you can't even choose between them and the waste that it causes and the fact that who's gonna really step out and do something different. She talks about the fact that when everybody's too diverse, it can bring things to a grinding halt as opposed to what we would like to think. She talks about why digital diaries are not nearly as efficient as you think compared to paper ones. Now, I liked this especially because I still use a paper calendar and I just don't think the other ones are nearly as efficient for me. But I can't tell you how many times I've been laughed at, literally, because, you know... I'm pretty uncool for that. She talks about why cool college students are much more toxic to those around them than rich students, which is a comparison I never would have thought of making, but she was dropping her daughter off to college, so that's what she was thinking about. Anyway, these are five minutes long, like I say, they're well-reasoned, and I enjoy them, so give them a try. Now, let's talk about the next couple of short stories which are going to be of the Tall Tales Told in Tavern sort. Anybody who's been listening around here much to the short stories I've read knows that these are a favorite category of mine. I guess you could almost call them a genre. I've read a few, and I'm always interested to discover new ones, because we all know about Tales from the White Heart by Arthur C. Clarke. We know about the Jorgens stories, because those are a couple that I've read. And I wasn't aware until I really began searching for these kind of stories that Sterling Lanier wrote a series of them. He's somebody who I only became aware of recently, but he was evidently an American editor, a science fiction author, and a sculptor. Of course, he was a science fiction author because we're going to talk about his short stories, which pretty much fall into that category. But he also, and I didn't know this till I started looking into him more, was the editor who championed the publication of Frank Herbert's best-selling novel, Dune. So we can all owe him a debt of gratitude, right? Now, I have read his post-apocalyptic novel that he's very famous for called Hero's Journey, H-I-E-R-O. Whoa, the spelling, right? I was not a fan. I think if I'd have read it when it came out, 1973, I would have been much more of a fan. It's very... Uh, limited, in my opinion. However, I know it has a lot of fans, and I'm not saying it was good or bad. The other thing he was really famous for, or well known at the time for, were his short stories about Brigadier Donald Fellows, spelled F-F-E-L-L-O-W-E-S, so very British with that double F. And they're You know, I would say Tall Tales Told in Taverns, this is a gentleman's club, but it's in essence the same thing. That's how Jorkins told his. Jorkins being the tales from Lord Dunsany, by the way. I was interested to see, because I found it on Kindle for not too much money, that Arthur C. Clarke did the foreword saying that he loved the Jorkins stories and other tales like that. And of course, that makes sense because he wrote Tales from the White Heart, which is what most of us got started on for that kind of genre. But he said that he was reading all these magazines at the time that Lanier's writings were coming out. And so he came across these stories and he was so excited. And it just makes me smile to think of him being such a fan, you know. Arthur C. Clarke and I have that in common. One other interesting thing about Sterling Lanier being a sculptor, which is a very interesting addition, I think. Most people don't have something like that added to their bio, is that he's been exhibited at a lot of museums, including the Smithsonian, and he specialized in miniatures and did a series of characters from Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and actually gave a set to Tolkien. Lanier corresponded with him, and Tolkien reportedly, according to Wikipedia, which is where I'm getting most of this, admired the miniatures, but didn't want them to be marketed commercially, so Lanier did not. I would say, in terms of these stories, which I enjoyed very much, that they are more in the um, weird fiction genre, if you had to pick a genre, kind of like the H.P. Lovecraftian type things. Because (laughs) some of the creatures that he comes up with, some of these adventures are just wonderful, but definitely outside of anything that we're thinking about in terms of a normal adventure. I'll be curious to see what anybody thinks of it. They are under copyright. I'm going to read one to you as a sample because I think It's really interesting how Fellows himself always is the main mover in these things. But the way it's told is, like I say, Lovecraftian is the only thing I can think of. They're just very eerie and otherworldly. The last thing I want to mention is that I realized after I was proofing it that I kind of did the voices all wrong. And that was because... Fellows, even though he's British, is in an American club in New York when he's telling these stories. So there's very little comment from anyone else, but there is somebody who always is the person who introduces the stories. His comments, I was trying to give like kind of a Bertie Wooster feel to in terms of, you know, kind of a twit. <laughs> but I realized I made him sound almost British to my ears because he's very affected sounding. And. And fellows, because he's telling the entire story, I just told in my own voice because I wanted to be able to get this kind of casual storytelling way of doing it. But he sounds very American. So I kind of flipped the nationalities to my ear. And I hope that doesn't throw anyone off. Just kind of ignore it. Go with the story, which is much more amazing than my narration. I hope you enjoy it despite that. I think you will. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The Peculiar Exploits of Brigadier Fellow by Sterling Lanier This book is under copyright, and this story is being read under the Fair Use Act as a sample of the work. The Kings of the Sea I don't remember how magic came into the conversation at the club, but it had somehow. Magic means rather different things to different people. To me, Brigadier Donald Fellows, late of Her Majesty's forces, had suddenly begun talking. He generally sat, ruddy, rather British, and rather tired-looking, on the edge of any circle— Occasionally he would add a date, a name, or simply nod if he felt like backing up someone else's story. His own stories came at odd intervals, and to many of us, frankly verged on the incredible, if not downright impossible. A retired artilleryman, fellows now lived in New York, but his service had been all over the world, and in almost every branch of military life, including what seemed to be police or espionage work. "'That's really all there is to be said about either his stories or him, "'except that once he started one, no one ever interrupted him. "'I was attached to the embassy in Berlin in 38, "'and I went to Sweden for a vacation. "'Very quiet and sunny, because it was summer, "'and I stayed in Smaland on the coast, at a little inn. "'For a bachelor who wanted rest, it was ideal.' Swimming every day, good food, and no newspapers, parades, crises, or Nazis. I had a letter from a Swedish pal I knew in Berlin to a Swedish nobleman, a local landowner, a sort of squire in those parts. I was so absolutely happy and relaxed, I quite forgot about going to see the man until the second week of my vacation, and when I did, I found out he wasn't at home in any case." He owned a largish old house about three miles from the inn, also on the coast road, and I decided to cycle over one day after lunch. The inn had a bike. It was a bright, still afternoon, and I wore my bathing trunks under my clothes, thinking I might get a swim either at the house or on the way back. I found the place easily enough, a huge dark-timbered house with peaked roofs, which would look very odd over here, and even at home but it looked fine there, surrounded by enormous old pine trees on a low bluff over the sea. There was a lovely lawn, cut close, spread under the trees. A big lorry, you'd say a moving van, was at the door, and two men were carrying stuff out as I arrived. A middle-aged woman, rather smartly dressed, was directing the movers with her back to me, so that I had a minute or two to see what they were moving. One of them had just manhandled a largish black chair, rather archaic in appearance, into the lorry, and then had started to lift a long carved wooden chest with a padlock on it, in after the chair. The second man, who must have been the boss mover, was arguing with the lady. I didn't speak too much Swedish, although I'm fair at German, but the two items I saw lifted into the van were apparently the cause of this argument, and I got the gist of it, you know. But, madam... "'the mover kept saying. "'Are you sure these pieces should be destroyed? "'They look very old.' "'You have been paid,' she kept saying in a stilted way. "'Now get rid of it any way you like. "'Only take it away now at once.' "'Then she turned and saw me, and believe it or not, blushed bright red. "'The blush went away quickly, though, "'and she asked me pretty sharply what I wanted. "'I answered in English that I had a letter to Baron Nyderstrom. She switched to English, which she spoke pretty well, and appeared a bit less nervous. I showed her the letter, which was a simple note of introduction, and she read it and actually smiled at me. She wasn't a bad-looking woman, about forty-five to forty-eight, somewhere in there. Anyway, but she was dressed to the nines, and her hair was dyed an odd shade of metallic brown. Also, she had a really hard mouth and eyes. "'I'm so sorry,' she said." "'But the baron, who is my nephew, is away for a week and a half. "'I know he would have been glad to entertain an English officer friend of Mr.' "'Here she looked at the letter. "'Of Mr. Sorenson. "'But I am afraid he is not around, while, as you see, I am occupied. "'Perhaps another time?' "'She smiled brightly, and also rather nastily, I thought. "'Be off with you, but polite.' Well, really, there was nothing to do except bow, and I got back on my bike and went wheeling off down the driveway. Halfway down the drive, I heard the lorry start, and I had just reached the road when it passed me, turning left, away from the direction of the inn, while I turned to the right. At that point, something quite appalling happened, just as the van left the drive, and also as I later discovered the estate's property line, something... A great weight seemed to start settling over my shoulders, while I was conscious of a terrible cold, a cold which almost numbed me and took my wind away. I fell off the bike, and half stood, half knelt over it, staring back after the dust of the lorry, and completely unable to move. I remember the letters on the license and on the back of the van, which was painted a dark red. They said Solvog and Mecius, Stockholm. I wasn't scared, mind you, because it was all too quick. I stood staring down the straight dusty road in the hot sun, conscious only of a terrible weight and the freezing cold, that weight pressing me down and that icy cold numbing me. It was as if time had stopped, and I felt utterly depressed, too sick and, well, hopeless. Suddenly the cold and the pressure stopped. They were just gone as if they had never been, and I was warm, in fact, covered with sweat, and feeling like a fool there in the sunlight. Also, the birds started singing among the birches and pines by the road, although, actually, I suppose they had been all along. I don't think the whole business took over a minute, but it seemed like hours. Well, I picked up the bike, which had scraped my shins, and started to walk along, pushing it. I could think quite coherently, and I decided I had had either a mild coronary or a stroke. I seemed to remember that if you felt cold, you had had a stroke. Also, I was really dripping with sweat by now and felt all swimmy you'd say dizzy. After about five minutes, I got on the bike and began to pedal slowly and carefully back to my inn, deciding to have a doctor check me out at once. I had only gone about a third of a mile, numbed still by the shock. After all, I was only twenty-five, pretty young to have a heart attack, or a stroke either, when I noticed a little cove, an arm of the Baltic on my right, which came almost up to the road, with tiny blue waves lapping at a small beach. I hadn't noticed it on the way to the Baron's house, looking the other way, I guess, but now it looked like heaven. I was soaked with sweat, exhausted by my experience, and now had a headache. That cool sea water looked really marvelous and, as I said earlier, I had my trunks on under my clothes. There was even a towel in the bag strapped to the bike. I undressed behind a large pine tree ten feet from the road and then stepped into the water. I could see white sand for about a dozen feet out, and then it appeared to get deeper quickly. I sat down in the shallow water with just my neck sticking out and began to feel human again. Even the headache receded into the background. There was no sound but the breeze sighing in the trees and the chirping of a few birds plus the splash of little waves on the shore behind me. I felt at peace with everything and shut my eyes, half sitting, half floating in the water. The sun on my head was warm. I don't know what made me open my eyes, but I must have felt something watching, some presence. I looked straight out to see the entrance of the little cove as I opened them, and stared into a face which was looking at me from the surface of the water about eight feet away, right where it began to get deeper. No one in the room had moved or spoken once the story had started, and since Fellows had not stopped speaking since he began, the silence as he paused now was oppressive, even the muted sound of traffic outside seeming far off and unreal. He looked at us, then lit a cigarette and continued steadily. It was about two feet long, as near as I could tell, with two huge, oval eyes of a shade of amber yellow set at the corners of its head. The skin looked both white and vaguely shimmery. There were no ears or nose that I could see, and there was a big, wide, flat mouth, opened a little, with blunt, shiny, rounded teeth. But what struck me most was the rage in the eyes. The whole impression of the face was vaguely, only vaguely, mind you, serpentine, snake-like. Except for those eyes. They were mad, furious, raging, and not like an animal's at all, but like a man's. I could see no neck. The face sat on the water, so to speak. I only had a split second to take all this in, mind you. But I was conscious at once that whatever this was, it was livid at me personally, not just at people. I suppose it sounds crazy, but I knew this right off. I hadn't even moved, hadn't had a chance, when something flickered under the head and a grip like a steel cable clamped onto my hip. I dug my heels in the sand and grabbed down, pushing as hard as I could, but I couldn't shake that grip As I looked down, I saw what had hold of me and damn near fainted, because it was a hand. It was double the size of mine, dead white, and had only two fingers and a thumb with no nails. But it was a hand. Behind it was a boneless-looking white arm like a giant snake or an eel, stretching away back toward the head, which still lay on the surface of the water. At the same time, I felt the air as cold, almost freezing, as if a private iceberg was following me again, although not to the point of making me numb. Oddly enough, the cold didn't seem to be in the water, although I can't explain this very well. I pulled back hard, but I might as well have pulled at a tree trunk for all the good it did. Very steadily, the pressure on my hip was increasing and I knew that in a minute I was going to be pulled out to that head. I was kicking and fighting, splashing the water and clawing at that hand, but in the most utter silence. The hand and arm felt just like rubber, but I could feel great muscles move under the hard skin. Suddenly I began to scream. I knew my foothold on the bottom sand was slipping and I was being pulled loose so that I'd be floating in a second. I don't remember what I screamed, Probably just yelling with no words. I knew for a certainty that I would be dead in thirty seconds, you see. He paused, then resumed. My vision began to blur, and I seemed to be slipping, mentally not physically, into a blind, cold world of darkness. But still I fought, and just as I began to be pulled loose from my footing, I heard two sounds. One was something like a machine gun, but ringing through it, I heard a human voice shouting. And I thought, shouting one long word. The shout was very strong, ringing, and resonant, so resonant that it pierced through the strange mental fog I was in. But the word was in no language I knew. Then I blacked out, and that was that. When I opened my eyes, I was in a spasm of choking. I was lying face down on the little beach. My face turned sideways on my crossed arms, and I was being given artificial respiration. I vomited up more water, and then managed to choke out a word or two, (laughs) probably obscene. There was a deep chuckle, and the person who had been helping me turned me over so that I could see him. He pulled me up to a sitting position and put a tweed-clad arm around my shoulders, giving me some support while I recovered my senses. Even kneeling as he was, when I turned to look at him, I could see he was a very tall man, in fact a giant. He was wearing a brown tweed suit with knickerbockers, heavy wool knee socks, and massive buckled shoes. His face was extraordinary. He was what's called an ash blonde, almost white-haired, and his face was very long with high cheekbones, and also very white with no hint of color in the cheeks. His eyes were green and very narrow, almost Chinese-looking, and terribly piercing. Not a man you would ever forget if once you got a look at him. He looked about thirty-five. and was actually thirty, I later found out. I was so struck by his appearance, even though he was smiling gently, that I almost forgot what had happened to me. Suddenly I remembered, though, and gave a convulsive start and tried to get up. As I did so, I turned to look at the water, and there was the cove, calm and serene, with no trace of that thing, or anything else. My new acquaintance tightened his grip on my shoulders and pulled me down to a sitting position— "'Speaking as he did so. "'Be calm, my friend. "'You have been through a hard time, but it is gone now. "'You are safe.' "'The minute I heard his voice, "'I knew it was he who had shouted as I was being pulled under. "'The same timbre was in his speech now "'so that every word rang like a bell, "'with a concealed purring under the words. "'I noticed more about him now, "'his clothes were soaked to the waist.' and on one powerful hand he wore an immense ring set with a green seal-stone, a crest. Obviously he had pulled me out of the water, and equally obviously he was no ordinary person. "'What was it?' I gasped finally. "'And how did you get me loose from it?' His answer was surprising. "'Did you get a good look at it?' He spoke in pure, unaccented British English, I might add. "'I did!' I said with feeling. It was the most frightful bloody thing I ever saw, and people ought to be warned about this coast. When I get to a phone, every paper in Sweden and abroad will hear about it. They ought to fish this area with dynamite. His answer was a deep sigh. Then he spoke. Face to face, you have seen one of Jormann Gondir's children, he said. "'And that is more than I or any of my family have done for generations.' "'He turned to face me directly and continued, "'And I must add, my friend, that if you tell a living soul of what you have seen, "'I will unhesitatingly pronounce you a liar or a lunatic. "'Further, I will say I found you alone, having a seeming fit in this little bay, "'and saved you from what appeared to me to be a vigorous attempt at suicide.' Having given me this belly punch, she lapsed into a brooding silence, staring out over the blue water while I was struck dumb by what I had heard. I began to feel I had been saved from a deadly sea monster, only to be captured by an apparent madman. Then he turned back to me, smiling again. "'I am called Baron Niederstrom,' he said, "'and my house is just a bit down the road.' Suppose we go and have a drink, change our clothes, and have a bit of a chat. I could only stammer. But your aunt said you were away, away for more than a week. I came to see you because I have a letter to you. I fumbled in my bathing suit and then lurched over to my clothes under the trees. I finally found the letter, but when I gave it to him, he stuck it in his pocket. In fact, I was just coming from your house when I decided to have a swim here. I'd had a sick spell as I was leaving your gate, and I thought the cool water would help. "'As you were leaving my gate?' he said sharply, helping me to get into my clothes. "'What do you mean, a sick spell, and what was that about my aunt?' As he assisted me, I saw for the first time a small blue sports car, of a type unfamiliar to me, parked on the road at the head of the beach. It was in this, then, that my rescuer had appeared.' Half carrying, half leading me up the gentle slope, he continued his questioning while I tried to answer him as best I could. I had just mentioned the lorry and the furniture as he got me into the left-hand bucket seat, having detailed in snatches my fainting and belief that I had had a mild stroke or heart spasm when he got really stirred up. He levered his great body and he must have been six foot five behind that wheel like lightning, and we shot off in a screech of gears and spitting of gravel, The staccato exhaust told me why I thought I had heard a machine gun while fighting that incredible thing in the water. Well, we tore back up the road, into and up his driveway, and without a word he slammed on the brakes and rushed into the house as if all the demons of hell were at his heels. I was left sitting stupefied in the car. I was not only physically exhausted and sick, but baffled, and beginning again to be terrified. As I looked around the pleasant green lawn, the tall trees and the rest of the sunny landscape, do you know, I wondered if through some error in dimensions I had fallen out of my own proper space and landed in a world of monsters and lunatics. It could only have been a moment when the immense figure of my host appeared in the doorway. On his fascinating face was an expression which I can only describe as mingled half-sorrow, half anger. Without a word, he strode down his front steps and over to the car, where, reaching in, he picked me up in his arms as easily as if I had been a doll, instead of one hundred and seventy-five pounds of British subaltern. He carried me up the steps, and as he walked, I could hear him murmuring to himself in Swedish. It sounded to me like gibberish, with several phrases I could just make out being repeated over and over. "'What could they do? What else could they do?' She would not be warned. What else could they do? We passed through a vast dark hall with great beams high overhead, until we came to the back of the house and into a large sunlit room overlooking the sea, which could only be the library or study. There were endless shelves of books, a huge desk, several chairs, and a long, low-padded window seat, on which the baron laid me gently. Going over to a closet in the corner, he got out a bottle of Aquavit and two glasses and handed me a full one, taking a more modest portion for himself. When I had downed it, (laughs) and I had never needed a drink more, he pulled up a straight-backed chair and set it down next to my head. Seating himself, he asked my name in the most serious way possible, and when I gave it, he looked out of the window a moment. "'My friend,' he said finally. I am the last of the Niederstroms. I mean that quite literally. Several rooms away, the woman you met earlier today is dead. As dead as you yourself would be had I not appeared on the road, and from the same, or at least a similar, cause. The only difference is that she brought this fate on herself, while you, a stranger, were almost killed by accident, and simply because you were present at the wrong time. He paused and then continued with the oddest sentence, although God knows I was baffled already. "'You see,' he said, "'I am a kind of game-warden, and some of my charges are loose.' With that he told me to lie quiet and started to leave the room. Remembering something, however, he came back and asked if I could remember the name of the firm which owned the movers' lorry I had seen. "'Unfortunately I could, for as I told you earlier, "'it was seared on my brain by the strange attack I had suffered "'while watching it go up the road. "'When I gave it to him, he told me again not to move "'and left the room for another, "'from which I could hear him faintly using a telephone. "'He was gone a long time, perhaps half an hour, "'and by the time he came back I was standing looking at his books. "'Despite the series of shocks I had gone through, and now felt fairly strong.' But it was more than that. This strange man, despite his odd threat, had saved my life, and I was sure that I was safe from him, at least. Also, he was obviously enmeshed in both sorrow and some danger, and I felt strongly moved to try and give him a hand. As he came back into the room, he looked hard at me, and I think he read what I was thinking, because he smiled, displaying a fine set of teeth. "'So, once again, you are yourself. "'If your nerves are strong, I wish you to look on my late aunt. "'The police have been summoned, and I need your help.' "'Just like that. "'A dead woman in the house, and he needed my help. "'Well, if he was going to get rid of me, why call the police? "'Anyway, I felt safe, as I told you, "'and you'd have to see the man as I did to know why. "'At any rate.' We went down the great hall to another room, much smaller, and then through that again until we found ourselves in a little sewing room, full of woman's stuff and small bits of fancy furniture. There in the middle of the room lay the lady whom I had seen earlier telling the movers to go away. She certainly appeared limp, but I knelt and felt her wrist because she was lying face down. Sure enough, no pulse at all and quite cold, but when I started to turn her over— A huge hand clamped on my shoulder, and the Baron spoke. "'I don't advise it,' he said warningly. "'Her face isn't fit to look at. She was frightened to death, you see.' I simply told him I had to, and he just shrugged his shoulders and stepped back. I got my hands under one shoulder and started to turn the lady, but my God, as the profile came into view, I dropped her and stood up like a shot.' From the little I saw, her mouth was drawn back like an animal's, showing every tooth, and her eye was wide open and glaring at uh, a ghastly manner. That was enough for me. Baron Niederstrom led me from the room and back into the library, where we each had another aquavit in silence. I started to speak, but he held up his hand in a kind of command and started talking. I shall tell the police that I passed you bathing on the beach, stopped to chat, and brought you back for a drink. We found my aunt dead of heart failure and called the police. Now, sir, I like you. But if you will not attest to this same story, I shall have to repeat what I told you I would say at the beach, and I am well known in these parts. Also, the servants are away on holiday, and I think you can see it would look ugly for you. I don't like threats, and it must have shown, because although it would have looked as bad as all hell, still I wasn't going to be party to any murders, no matter how well planned. I told him so bluntly, and he looked sad and reflective, but not particularly worried. Very well, he said at length. I can't really blame you, because you are in a very odd position. His striking head turned toward the window in brief thought and then he turned back to face me directly and spoke. "'I will make a bargain with you. "'Attest my statement to the police, "'and then let me have the rest of the day to talk to you. "'If at the end of the day I have not satisfied you about my aunt's death, "'you have my word solemnly given that I will go to the police station "'and attest your story, the fact that I have been lying "'and anything else you choose to say.' His words were delivered with great gravity, and it never for one instant occurred to me to doubt them. I can't give you any stronger statement to show you how the man impressed me. I agreed straight away. In about ten minutes the police arrived, and an ambulance came with them. They were efficient enough and very quick, but there was one thing that showed through the whole of the proceedings, and it was that the Baron Niederstrom was somebody— All he did was state that his aunt had died of a heart attack, and that was that. I don't mean the police were serfs or crooks either, for that matter, but there was an attitude of deference very far removed from servility or politeness. I doubt if royalty gets any more nowadays, even in England. When he had told me earlier that his name was known in these parts, it was obviously the understatement of the decade." Well, the police took the body away in the ambulance, the baron made arrangements for a funeral parlor and a church with local people over the telephone. All this took a while, and it must have been 4.30 when we were alone again. We went back into the library. I should mention that he had gotten some cold meat, bread, and beer from a back pantry just after the police left, and so now we sat down and made ourselves some sandwiches. I was ravenous, but he ate quite lightly for a man of his size, In fact, only about a third of what I did. When I felt full, I poured another glass of an excellent beer, lit a cigarette, sat back, and waited. With this man, there was no need for unnecessary speech. He was sitting behind his big desk, facing me, and once again that singularly attractive smile broke through. "'You are waiting for your story, my friend, if I may call you so. You shall have it.' but I ask your word as a man of honor that it not be for repetition. He paused briefly. I know it is yet a further condition, but if you do not give it, there is no recourse except the police station and jail for me. If you do, you will hear a story and perhaps, hmm, perhaps, I say, because I make no promises, see and hear something which no man has seen or heard for many, many centuries— Save only for my family, and not many of them. What do you say? I never hesitated for a second. I said yes, and I should add that I've never regretted it. No, never. Fellow's thoughts seemed far away as he paused and stared out into the murky New York night, dimly lit by shrouded street lamps and the fog lights on passing cars. No one spoke, and no sound broke the silence of the room but a muffled cough he continued. Niederstrom next asked me if I knew anything about Norse mythology. Now, this question threw me for an absolute loss. What did a dangerous animal and an awful death, to say nothing of a possible murder, have to do with Norse mythology? However, I answered that I'd read of Odin, Thor, and a few other gods as a child in school, the Valkyries, of course, and um, that was about it. Odin, Thor, the Valkyries, and a few others, my host smiled. You must understand that they are rather late Norse and even late German adaptations of something much older. Much, much older. Something with its roots in the dawn of the world. Listen. He went on, speaking quietly but firmly. And when I have finished, we will wait for that mover's truck to return. I was able to intercept it, and what it took, because of that very foolish woman, must be returned. He paused as if at a loss how to begin, and went on. His bell-like voice remained muted, but perfectly audible, while he detailed one of the damnedest stories I've ever heard. If I hadn't been through what I had that day, and if he hadn't been what he was... I could have thought I was listening to the grand master of all the lunatics I'd ever met. Long ago, he said, my family came from Inner Asia. They were some of the people the latecomers called Asir, the gods of Valhalla. But they were not gods, only a race of wandering conquerors. They settled here on this spot, despite warnings from the few local inhabitants, a small, dark, shore-dwelling folk. This house is built on the foundations of a fortress, a very old one, dating, at the very least, back to the second century B.C. It was destroyed later in the wars of the sixteenth century, but that is modern history. At any rate, my remote ancestors soon began to lose people. Women bathing, boys fishing, even full-grown warriors out hunting. They would vanish and never return. Children had to be guarded, and so did the livestock— "'which had a way of disappearing also. "'Although, of course, that was preferable to the children. "'Finally, for no trace of the mysterious marauders could be found, "'the chief of my family decided to move away. "'He had prayed to his gods and searched zealously, "'but the reign of silent, stealthy terror never ceased, "'and no human or other foe could be found. "'But before he gave up, the chief had an idea.' He sent presents and a summons to the shaman, the local priest, not of our own people, but of the few furtive little shore folk, the strand people, who had been there when we came. We despised and avoided them, but we had never harmed them, and the bent little shaman came and answered the chief's question. What he had to say amounted to this. We, that is my people. Had settled on the land made sacred in the remote past to the German Gandir. Now, the German Gandir, in the standard Norse sagas and myths, is the great, world circling sea serpent, the son of the renegade Asir Loki, and a giantess. He is a monster who, on the day of Ragnarok, will arise to assault Asgard. But actually, these myths are based on something quite, quite different. The ancient Jormungandir was a god of the sea, all right, but he was here before any Norsemen, and he had children who were semi-mortal, and very, very dangerous. All the Asgard business was invented later by people who did not remember the reality, which was both unpleasant and a literal living menace to ancient men. My ancestor, the first of our race to rule here, asked what he could do to abate the menace— "'Unless, if the chief were brave enough, he, the shaman, could summon the children of the god, and the chief could ask them how they felt. "'Well, my people were anything but Christians in those days, and they had some rather nasty gods of their own. "'Also, the old chief, my ancestor, was on his mettle, and he liked the land he and his tribe had settled. "'So he agreed.' and although his counsellors tried to prevent him, he went alone at night to the shore with the old shaman of the shore people. And what is more, he returned. From that day to this we have always lived here on this stretch of shore. There is a vault below the deepest cellar where certain things are kept, and a ceremony through which the eldest son of the house of Niederstrom must pass. I will not tell you more about it, save to say that it involves an oath, one we have never broken, and that the other parties to the oath would not be good for men to see. You should know, for you have seen one. I had sat spellbound while this rigmarole went on, and some of the disbelief must have shown in my eyes, because he spoke rather sharply all at once. "'What do you think the Watcher in the Sea was?' The animal that seized you, if it had been anyone else in that car but myself. I nodded, because after recalling my experience on the swim, I was less ready to dismiss his story, and I had been in danger of forgetting my adventure. I apologized, and he went on talking. The woman you spoke to was my father's much younger sister, a vain and arrogant woman of no brain power at all. She lived a life in what is now thought of as society in Stockholm on a generous allowance from me, and I have never liked her. Somewhere, perhaps as a child, she learned more than she should have about the family secret, which is ordinarily never revealed to our women. She wished me to marry and tried ceaselessly to entrap me with female idiots of good family whom she had selected. It is true that I must some day marry, but my aunt irritated me beyond measure, and I finally ordered her out of the house and told her that her allowance would cease if she did not stop troubling me. She was always using the place for house parties for her vapid friends until I put a stop to it. I knew when I saw her body what she had done. She must have found out that the servants were away and that I would be gone for the day. She sent men from Stockholm." The local folk would not obey such an order from her, in my absence. She must have had duplicate keys, and she went down and moved what she should never have seen, let alone touched. It was sacrilege, no less, and of a very real and dangerous kind. The fool thought the thing she took held me to the house, I imagine. You see— He went on, with more passion in his voice than I had previously heard— "'They are not responsible. They do not see things as we do. "'They regarded the moving of those things as the breaking of a trust. "'And they struck back. "'You appeared, because of the time element, to have some connection, "'and they struck at you. You do see what I mean, don't you?' "'His green eyes fixed themselves on me in an open appeal. "'He actually wanted sympathy for what, if his words were true— "'Must be the damnedest set of beings The side of madness. "'And even Otter, you know, he had got it. "'I had begun to make a twisted sense of what he had said, "'and on that quiet evening in the big shadowed room "'I seemed to feel an ancient and undying wrong, "'moreover, one which badly needed putting right. "'He seemed to sense this and went on, more quietly. "'You know, I still need your help.' Your silence later, but more immediate help now. Soon that lorry will be here, and the things it took must be restored. I am not now sure if I can heal the breach. It will depend on the others. If they believe me, all will go as before. If not, well, it was my family who kept the trust, but also who broke it. I will be in great danger not only to my body, but also to my soul. Their power is not all of the body. We have never known, he went on softly, why they love this strip of coast. It is not used, so far as we know, for any of their purposes, and they are subject to our emotions or desires in any case, but they do, and so the trust is honored. He looked at his watch and murmured, Six o'clock. He got up and went to the telephone but as his hand met the receiver, we both heard something. It was a distant noise, a curious sound, as if far away somewhere, a great wet piece of cloth were being dragged over a stone. In the great silent house, the sound could not be localized, but it seemed to me to come from deep below us. Perhaps in a cellar, it made my hair stiffen. Ah, he muttered. "'They're stirring. I wonder—' "'As he spoke, we both became conscious of another noise, "'one which had been growing upon us for some moments, unaware— "'that of a powerful motor-engine. "'Our minds must have worked together, for as the engine noise grew, "'our eyes met, and we both burst into simultaneous gasps of relief. "'It could only be the furniture-van returning at last. "'We both ran to the entrance— The hush of evening lay over the estate, and shadows were long and dark, but the twin lights turning into the drive cast a welcome luminance over the entrance. The big lorry parked again in front of the main entrance, and the two workmen I had seen earlier got out. I couldn't really understand the rapid gunfire Swedish, but I gathered the baron was explaining his aunt had made a mistake. At one point both men looked appalled, and I gathered that Niederstrom had told them of his aunt's death He told me later that he had conveyed the impression that she was unsound mentally. It would help quiet gossip when they saw a report of the death. All four of us went around to the rear of the van, and the two men opened the doors. Under the baron's direction they carried out and deposited on the gravel the two pieces of furniture I had seen earlier. One was the curious chair. It did not look terribly heavy— but it had a box bottom, solid sides instead of legs, and no armrests. Carved on the oval-topped head was a hand grasping a sort of trident, and when I looked closely I got a real jolt. The hand had only two fingers and a thumb, all without nails. And I suddenly felt in my bones the reality of my host's story. The other piece was the small, plain, rectangular chest— a bit like a large toy chest with short legs ending in feet like a duck's. I mean, three-toed and webbed, not the conventional duck foot of the antique dealers. Both the chair and the chest were made of a dark wood, so dark it looked oily, and they certainly had not been made yesterday. Niederstrom had the two men put the two pieces in the front hall and then paid them. They climbed back into their cab so far as I could make out, apologizing continuously for any trouble they might have caused." We waved from the porch and then watched the light sweep down the drive and fade into the night. It was fully dark now, and I suddenly felt a sense of plain old-fashioned fright as we stood in silence on the dark porch. Come, said the Baron, suddenly breaking the silence. We must hurry. I assume you will help. Certainly, I said. I felt I had to, you see, and had no lingering doubts at all. I'm afraid that if he'd suggested murdering someone, by this time I'd have agreed cheerfully. There was a compelling, hypnotic power about him. Rasputin was supposed to have had it, and Hitler also, although I saw him plenty and never felt it. At any rate, I just couldn't feel that anything this man wanted was wrong. We manhandled the chair and the chest into the back of the house— "'stopping at last in a back hall in front of a huge oaken door, "'which appeared to be set in a stone wall. "'Since the house was made of wood, "'this stone must have been part of the original building, "'the ancient fort, I guess, that he'd mentioned earlier. "'There were three locks on the door, "'a giant old padlock, a smaller, newer one, "'and a very modern-looking combination. "'Niederstrom fished out two keys, "'one of them huge, and turned them. Then, with his back to me, he worked the combination. The old house was utterly silent, and there was almost an atmospheric hush, the kind you get when a bad thunderstorm is going to break. Everything seemed to be waiting, waiting for something to happen. There was a click, and Niederstrom flung the great door open. The first thing I noticed was that it was lined with steel on the other inner side, and the second that it opened on a broad flight of shallow steps leading down on a curve, out of sight, into the darkness. The third impression was not visual at all. A wave of odor, strong but not unpleasant, of tide pools, seaweed, and salt air poured out of the opening, and there were several large patches of water on the highest steps, large enough to reflect the light. Niederstrom closed the door again gently, not securing it, and turned to me. He pointed, and I now saw on one wall of the corridor to the left of the door, about head height, a steel box, also with a combination lock. A heavy cable led from it down to the floor. Still in silence, he adjusted the combination and opened the box. Inside was a knife switch with a red handle. He left the box open and spoke solemnly and slowly. I am going down to a confrontation. You must stay right here with the door open a little, watching the steps. I may be half an hour, but at most three quarters. If I come up alone, let me out. If I come up not alone, slam the door, turn the lock, and throw that switch. Also, if anything else comes up, do so. "'This whole house under my direction and at my coming of age was extensively mined, "'and you will have exactly two and a half minutes to get as far as possible from it. "'Remember at most three quarters of an hour. "'At the end of that time, even if nothing has happened, "'you will throw that switch and run.' "'I could only nod. "'There seemed to be nothing to say, really.' He seemed to relax a little, patted me on the shoulders, and turned to unlock the strange chest. Over his shoulder he talked to me as he took things out. You are going to see one thing at any rate, a true sea-king in full regalia, something, my friend, no one has seen who is not a member of my family since the late Bronze Age. He stood up and began to undress quickly, until he stood absolutely naked, I have never seen a more wonderful figure of a man, pallid as an ivory statue, but huge and splendidly formed. On his head, from out of the stuff in the chest, he had set a narrow coronet, only a band in the back, but rising to a flanged peak in front. Mounted in the front peak was a plaque, on which the three-fingered hand and trident were outlined in purple gems. The thing was solid gold." Niederstrom then stooped and pulled on a curious, short kilt, made of some scaly hide like a lizard's, and colored in odd green gold. Finally, he took in his right hand a short, curved gold rod, ending in a blunt, stylized trident. We looked at each other a moment, and then he smiled. "'My ancestors were very successful Vikings,' he said, still smiling. "'You see,' They could always call on help. With that, he swung the door open and went marching down the steps. I half shut it behind him and settled down to watch and listen. The sound of his footsteps receded into the distance, and I could still hear them in the utter silence for a long time. His family vault, which I was sure connected somehow with the sea, was a long way down. I crouched, tense, wondering if I would ever see him again the whole business was utterly mad and i believed every word of it i still do the steps finally faded into silence i checked my watch and found 10 minutes had gone by suddenly as if out of an indefinite distance i heard his voice i recognized it instantly for it was a long quavering call sonorous and bell-like very similar to what i had heard when he rescued me in that afternoon The sound came from far down in the earth, echoing faintly up the dank stairs, and died into silence. Then it came again, and when it died, yet again. My heart seemed to stop. I knew that this brave man was summoning something no man had a right to see, and calling a council in which no one with human blood in his veins should not sit. Silence, utter and complete, followed. I could hear nothing, save for an occasional faint drop of water falling somewhere out of my range of vision. I glanced at my watch. Twenty-one minutes had gone by. The minutes seemed to crawl endlessly, meaninglessly. I felt alone and in a strange dream, unable to move, frozen, an atom caught in a mesh beyond my comprehension. Then, far away, I heard it, a faint sound. It was faint but regular and increasing in volume, measured and remorseless. It was a tread, and it was coming up the stair in my direction. I glanced at my watch. Thirty-four minutes. It could be my friend, still within his self-appointed limits of time. The step came nearer, nearer still. It was, so far as my straining ear could judge, a single step. It progressed further, and suddenly, into the circle of light, stepped Niederstrom. He was alone, and as he came up, he waved in greeting. He was dripping wet, and the light gleamed on his shining body. I threw the door wide, and he stepped through. As his head emerged into the light, I stepped back, almost involuntarily. There was a look of exaltation and wonder on it, such as I have never seen on a human face. The strange green eyes flashed, and there was a faint flush on the high cheekbones. He looked like a man who has seen a vision of paradise. He walked rather wearily, but firmly, over to the switch-box, which he closed and locked. Then he turned to me, still with that blaze of radiance on his face. "'All is well, my friend. They are again at peace with men. They have accepted me. "'and the story of what happened. "'All will be well now, with my house and with me.' "'I stared at him hard, but he said no more, "'and began to divest himself of his incredible regalia. "'He had one more thing to say, "'and I can hear it still as if it were yesterday, "'spoken almost as an afterthought. "'They say the blood of the guardians is getting too thin again, "'but that also is settled.' I have seen my bride. Can we assume that his bride-to-be does not look like that horribly creepy monster that attacked Brigadier Fellows in the ocean? Um, Because otherwise he's got strange taste in women. (laughs) He comes back so luminous and so expectant looking and seeming overjoyed. And then he says that line about his bride and I'm just going, oh, okay. It was pretty creepy though, right? In that kind of nebulous way, although we did get a description of the monster that didn't really describe too many things, but just enough for you to go, whoa, that just doesn't even work. I don't even know what you're talking about here, but I'm terrified. And obviously they could be quite terrifying since they scared someone to death and the expression was so bad that he's like, no, I don't want to see her whole face when I turn her over. Forget it. So all the stories have various elements like that, those kind of otherworldly pull back the veil, here's something else going on elements, which is the hallmark of the good weird story. Brigadier Fellows himself has always pretty straightforward and bluff. Although with his experience of all these things, he has an open mind. So I love Brigadier Fellows. Again, I hope my narration didn't uh, mess the story up. (laughs) But I got into it when I was editing it and listening. So I hope you did too. You can get that collection, and also there's another collection on the Kindle, although the reviews I've seen of the second collection make it sound like it has so many errors in it that it's very difficult to read. The first collection was enough for me. I didn't need to read more. I I do keep an eye out for them, because I'd love to have copies of them that aren't on the Kindle, but they're very hard to come by. Our next story will also be a tall tale told in a tavern, and it will be the last of those that I know of for that genre. So if you know of others after I've read this next one, then definitely let me know so I can look for them and maybe sample one for us. After that, we're going to go into the creepy stories for October, for Halloween, which I'm really looking forward to, as you know. We're also going to go a bit scarier for anybody who is interested in trying out A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. October is a month Scott and I both really love, and so we make sure every year to alternate on the calendar who gets it. (laughs) So we get to choose our scary books and movies. And Scott has chosen Salem's Lot and then Super 8, which doesn't strike me as... Halloween-ish, but you know, obviously there's something I'm missing about the movie that when I see it again, it's going to really spring to mind. Anyway, so that's coming up. And we just actually posted our episode that has us talking about Monty Python's Life of Brian. So I invite you to come by and try it out. October is also one of those months where around the potosphere. Anybody who does stories suddenly leaps onto the Halloween bandwagon. As I come across things, I'll let you know I have been listening to fewer and fewer story podcasts just because I have suddenly, as I've told you, been so much more focused on audiobooks. The latest being Great Expectations, which I've wrestled my way through. And I'm gratified to like it now that I finally made myself finish it, because I thought that was a thing that was never going to happen. I did not have great expectations for that book. (laughs) Yeah, I'm hilarious, I know. Anyway, (laughs) if you have, well, I would say scary stories, but I've kind of got mine mapped out. But if you have scary stories, let me know. We don't have to just read them in October, and you might bring up something that I like so much that... I substitute it for something I've already got chosen. And after those Halloween stories, we will begin Heidi's Alp, which I have with permission of the author. Woohoo! And we are going to enjoy a lot because it's very different, but quite good. Otherwise, I wouldn't read it to you. So where would you send those story ideas? Well, you'd send them to julie at glyphnet.com. That's G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T dot com. Or you can go to the blog for the podcast, which is hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. And you can't send ideas to iTunes, actually, but you can leave me a review. And I love them and appreciate them very much. And they make me very happy. And they also help other people find this podcast too. So I would like that also naturally. Other than that, we're settling into some cooler than usual fall weather. As I've mentioned, we're just having the best year in terms of not being so super hot the whole time. Although now I hear the big forecast is a lot more ice storms this winter. Well, guess what? When I moved here 20, golly, 30 years ago, They had ice storms all the time. So maybe we're coming back through that weather cycle again. Whatever it is, I'm not going to worry about the ice that could be in the future. I'm going to enjoy the weather that we're having today and this weekend. Beautiful, beautiful weather where I can have a bunch of friends over on Sunday and we're going to have popcorn and cookies and wine and coffee and whatever anybody wants to have and talk and talk and talk and talk. And have a good time. And we're going to watch cowboys play football. Woohoo! Or, if you're a cowboy hater, you don't need to listen to this part. <laughs> but I'm happy because they seem to be clawing their way along respectably. So that's always good. And other than that, just going along, working and having a very enjoyable life, for which I'm most grateful And of course, one of the things that I'm most grateful for is that you come by to listen. I wouldn't be reading these stories out loud, and it's a lot of fun looking for the stories, planning, thinking, reading, proofing, and talking to you. So thank you. Have a great week, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.